Welcome to The Pot of Gold, where we talk all things precious metals and their markets. Today, we look at how gold short positions continue to increase, why central bank policies will keep markets transfixed for some time, and the impact of China's 20th National Congress meeting on the Australian dollar. I'm your host, Shay Russell, and joining me today is Nick Frappel, ABC Refinery's Global Head of Institutional Markets. Nick, how are you, mate? Extremely well, Shay. Thanks very much. Good to see you again. It is fantastic to have you back. Now, you have just returned from the LBMA annual conference in Lisbon, I believe. Uh, I hope it was nice for everybody to get back together in the same room. It was fantastic. It was absolutely great. It was uh, it was um, really awesome and held in a fantastic city as well. Well, it's good to get the gold industry back together again. However, what I would like to know about today is what is gold doing? Uh, gold res- uh, ref- seems to be refusing to budge up above 1670. Uh, it is trapped in a downwards pattern. Tell me, Nick, let's take a look at managed money and open interest uh, and also gold-backed ETFs. How is money flowing into gold? And secondarily, I want to know what is the technical picture for gold and is there any uh, legs up in sight? Yeah, sure. Um, Well, looking at the managed money uh, positioning as of the 18th of October, um, Tuesday of last week, uh, managed money longs continue to decline in gold. Went down to seven and a third million ounces, seven point three three million ounces. On the other hand, shorts increased almost ten million ounces. They did that in the prior week's uh, VWAP of about a thousand six hundred and sixty-six thereabouts. So that took net positioning to minus two point five seven million. And just to remind uh, remind you, net positioning over the last sixteen years, just taking that as a good indicator of where net positioning normally averages out, that's been 9.3 million positive. So we're, again, well below what the uh, normal net positioning or the average net positioning is. Um, Since Tuesday, last Tuesday, the 18th, um, what has happened with open interest? Um, Well, the 19th saw a decent increase in open interest. That suggested a further round of short selling as the price dropped hard that day. Friday saw the um, open interest shrink a little bit. And overall price action felt like short covering, although it wasn't really a big change in open interest from what I could see. On the gold ETF side, gold ETF length declined again. World ETF length stands at just over 95 million ounces, which is, if you look at it just from like the the high of the year in April, that's an 11% decline through the year. April high was 107 million um, now we're just uh, just over 95. And that confirms the sentiment. Those are the same messages coming out of uh, the CME as, as out of ETFs. Looking at technicals, um, gold held the previous lows. Um, it's made a nice-looking double bottom there. Bounced pretty sharply, and that's going to be interesting from a kind of target's point of view. Um, and that, that bounce, um, a couple of different things. And a dollar weakened slightly to some degree, on expectations of a slower pace of rate rises in the US. Um, Fed watchers were listening to Mary Daly of the San Francisco Fed and heard what they thought was a warning against too rapid a pace of rises. Uh, the Fed might deliver a 50 basis point rise in December, not 75. To some extent, the slight weakening in the broad dollar index would have been affected by the yen closing the week lower on um, possibly on more intervention. We'll, we'll get onto the monetary topic later, of course. So, Given that gold bounced pretty rapidly off the 16, 17 low, target-wise, um, it did make some targets up 
to you know seven uh, up, up until even the 1700s although i think they look pretty fragile where we are now looking for weakness back to the 1620s got resistance at 1672 which you alluded to 1680 and those are coming from the daily standard line and the weekly turning line respectively uh via the Ichimoku cloud charts for us dollar gold um, so that's that. Those are the sort of, and again, you know, there seems to be pretty good support. People are people are quite happy to take in gold um, in the in the sort of sub sixteen twenties level. Um, again, you know, looks like sh- people, shorts are willing to take take uh, profits around there. Uh, this is an interesting trap that gold finds itself in. Uh, there's there's money rolling out of gold, but it seems support for the precious metal is quite uh, quite close. Yeah, I think. Look, there's um, the the. If you look at what's going on with um, you know US dollar um, you know tip yields and so on ten year tips, they haven't really pushed much higher, and at the same time the dollar has done a lot, and there are geopolitical concerns left and right. So um, I guess that that's a that's a level. Although I think gold could fall lower on uh, you know current yields, um, and given that there's this persistent kind of return to will the Fed um, not ramp. Uh, rates up as aggressively, um, that, you know that sort of just over sixteen hundred level. You can kind of see where people might be a little bit reluctant to try and push through there. Now, I want to touch on silver because silver's been singing a bit of a different song when it comes uh, compared to gold. Uh, for the past couple of months, we've discussed off and on how silver has been moving or has had a neat correlation with copper. Uh, tell me, is the co- correlation with copper still continuing? And are we seeing money to start to move into silver again? Uh, what, what's the market looking like here, Nick? Well, if you look at um, managed money uh, positioning, it is a slightly different story because silver managed money longs grew by about 9% to um, $182 million, and shorts grew even more to over 220 So the shorts having another go at um, at uh, the uh, at, at, at the downside um, they grew by over 53 million tri ounces. And that took um, net positioning to minus almost 39 million ounces. Returns net positioning to the dominant theme since the end of June. Seven out of 10 weeks since the end of June have been net short for silver. Um, those new positions created in the week ending the 18th of October came in the VWAP of um, volume weighted average price of about 18.82 in US dollar terms. Current price now is 19.35. Uh, actually, it was at the time of time of writing, um, and uh, so those shorts would be somewhat on the defensive, not hugely, but somewhat. Um, now, since October the eighteenth, open interest in CME silver grew a little bit by about ten million ounces. That looks, judging by the um, price action, that that's fresh longs flowing into the market, not fresh shorts. Um, silver ETF behavior look length via the ETF still continues to bleed lower. Uh, it's now at 766.5 million triances. And for comparison, the highest ETF position this year was over 911 million ounces. Um, on the target side, look, there are plenty of targets higher from both short and medium term point and figure. There's 2230, 24, even 2836 comes up in a, as a medium term target. The downside targets basis, the more recent price action and more, more recent sort of chopping around, uh, suggests silver could return to the low 18s without necessarily knocking out some of those uh, those bigger upside targets. Um, and I'll get on to the sort of copper comment uh, 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 shortly. Um, 
resistance. I see resistance at 1945, fairly close. Uh, 2042 from the weekly uh, standard line as of today, the 26th of Oct. Um, the weekly cloud base comes in overhead at 23.5 US dollars, then starts to progressively get lower. And Spot really has to get through that cloud for the trend to turn positive in the longer term. So still from a, a weekly cloud interpretation, silver is still negative. Um, and I think, you know, you mentioned copper. Um, actually, I need to take a look at copper, but uh, that probably um, reflects a sort of concern about um, recessionary um, you know, kind of the, the fear of a recession in 2023, and if not 2023, then developing into 2024. Um, so that's 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 how I see silver. I do see silver has, you know, maybe maybe I'm too bullish on silver, but I do see silver as having a um, scope for uh, for um, a recovery uh, back up to that weekly cloud resistance, and partly that might be helped, you know, given that there are another substantial round of uh, shorts entering the market or enter the market in the week ending 18th, that might sort of present a little bit of a target where if those guys short cover, you could see a short-term uh, run, up in, in run up in the silver. Uh, shifting gears, Nick, it is time uh, to take your technical lens and now look at the macros, uh, the macroeconomic backdrop. I would like to talk about the Fed. Now, this has been a persistent theme of ours for 2022. Now, a couple of a couple of years ago, the Fed abandoned forward guidance when it comes to talking to the market, and they've now made it very clear that their policy decisions are rate dependent. Uh, given that we've seen quite some quite substantial increases at recent Federal Reserve meetings, uh, you hinted before that uh, Mary Daly, I believe it was Mary Daly, uh, has suggested that um, maybe there won't be so many aggressive moves in the future. Uh, tell me, how are the markets digesting this information? We know it's continuing to knock gold around a little bit, but from a central banking point of view, how are the markets interpreting how the Fed see the market? Because we're all trying to guess what the Fed's looking for, for people then to go on and make um, their own decisions. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, there's – I think despite the sort of, you know, there has been this undertone again of less uh, less rapid tightening and, you know, for various reasons. Um, there are some sort of essential points which I, I think, you know, we have to bear in mind. Um, you know, looking at things like terminal rates and so on, uh, which are priced off not just expectations and what analysts think, but also priced off what uh, the futures curve looks like. So people's actual decisions to enter the market and have a view or either are hedging against a particular view or they're taking a, um, a sort of a, a speculative interest in that view. Right now, the market as a whole doesn't seem to see a lower terminal rate. And that's, that's got to matter because in the end, you still end up with a, kind of an unchanged degree of tightening it's just more of a debate about the pathway to getting there. Um, I think the Fed's unlikely to want a signal that it's resolved to tame inflation as being knocked off course. And of course, if you see a, a, a lower um, a, a sort of pace of tightening at a particular Fed meeting, you know, that, that could be the interpretation. And you know, commentators are coming up with reasons why the Fed might want to row back from uh, their existing aggressive policy. The housing market, you know, which of course affects the wealth and perception of wealth uh, of so many Americans is one example of an asset class where the Fed might care enough to take its foot off the gas a little bit, according to according to some observers. But, you know, let's face it, 
stretched valuations across a range of assets, you know, whether the debt securities, housing, equities, um, they've been a feature of the Fed's easy monetary stance in the preceding decade. So it's kind of an unavoidable outcome that some of those remarkable valuations, and I think some of them will be viewed as historically remarkable over the next 24 to 36 months, that they will undergo a profound reset. Um, now, getting to market estimates of Fed outcomes, and particularly talking about the next couple of months, as of putting this together, they haven't shifted nearly as much as the talk around a less aggressive tightening might suggest. Uh, December probabilities for a target rate of 450, 475, which is what, 1.5% above the current 3 to 3 and a quarter target that we have. Um, they've shifted downward over the course of the last month from 65% to 54%. That's still a higher probability than the market expectation of 50 points, which at the time of writing is 47%. And itself is a far, far lower than expectations of 50 were a month ago. Um, so to me, that much higher expectation of, of, of 50 a month ago, um, you know, and the fact that it's actually like lowered, you know, to me, in short, that says the market pricing of a slower Fed really isn't visible. The, the, the talk is there, but the market pricing doesn't seem to be. And from, you know, going back to the point you made about uh, being data dependent, um, absolutely. And from a data point of view, unless there are some really big upsets um, from what we expect to see in inflation, labor markets, and GDP data, they're all set to tell the, tell the story that inflation isn't receding, labor market in the US is still tight. And the economy is moving on fast enough to cope, cope with some fairly chunky um, hikes. Now, saying that, we are hearing that asset managers are relatively longer treasuries, reflecting a likely belief that the Fed will choose the lower of the two options, the two outcomes in the December meeting, positioned slightly longer duration, slightly longer positioning. Um, that, would, that would benefit from a, a 50 basis point call um, relative to a 75 basis point call. So we've got the Fed who, as you've just pointed out, I, I do love your phrasing there, uh, the, the US market can cope with some chunky rate hikes. I, I, I will be using that and claiming that as my own in conversation with people <laughs> around me. But I want to now talk about the central bank that is absolutely moving against the grain when it comes to central banking, uh, uh, central bank tightening at the moment, and that is the Bank of Japan. Uh, now, the Bank of Japan is uh, continuing to diverge from other central banks at the moment, and something this is you know this has been a constant theme throughout the year. How one group of central banks moving in one way, and the Bank of Japan certainly you know going out on their own. Now, their policies of the central bank of Japan are actually continuing to weaken the yen. I believed it hit uh, nearly one one five two one hundred and fifty two against the US dollar just recently. Um, uh, uh, you know. Tell me, how does this ongoing volatility from the in the yen impact what's happening within the Japanese economy? Well, it's certainly a really big problem for importers uh, because it's driving up the, um, the there's you know a great deal of reliance on imports uh, in the Japanese economy. Energy, particularly, is uh, the obvious one, and then some food uh, issues as well. So that's driving up um, the the cost of all of those those imports. It's also actually uh, having a slight issue with one of their sort of long-term policies, which is importing labor, um, because people are less incentivized to um, move to Japan and, um, you know, join that labor force from, a, from abroad 
if their earnings are um, perceived to be weaker and they've weakened sharply uh, in the last in the last you know six months during the course of the year, and that's of course part of the longer term growth plan of the. Uh, of the, of the Japanese government is to say, look, you know, we, we do have a demographic problem. There's, it's been a long-term, well understood for a long term. There's a, a demographic drag on uh, Japanese growth. So um, that's one of the sort of, <clears throat> you know, if you like, the the struts, whatever they, they reliant on uh, over the next 10 or 20 years is to is to um, have more, grow, grow the labor force, grow a younger labor force, but they're going to be less incentivized to come over if that's, uh, if you know, looking at what's happening with the yen. That is not forever, of course, but it's the situation now. Interesting thing is, is that you know, with the the, the yen almost touching 152 the other day, is the what's going on? Is it is it is it something where the yen is seriously out of whack? Um, is it is it cheap? Because it kind of could look cheap. It's uh, you know, I mean, it's moved so fast so quickly. What's interesting is that there's still a huge amount of demand for dollars from importers. Uh, hedges that are rolling off uh, uh, mean that you know importers will be will have a, face a high demand for dollars uh, to pay for imports. Uh, there is a really strong fundamental uh, um, background to the yen being at this level, um, and it's it's obviously yeah that's the, the 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 main reason for dollar strength relative to other currencies is the is strong strong u.s economy and high yields yeah of course that's one thing but you've got a really really tremendous um sort of fundamental story as well now um if you look at uh, if you look at the trade just trying to find the numbers here what did i write um the, the size of the trade deficit year to date the trade deficit is 14 trillion yen that's huge and it's a very very different story to what we saw in um, you know decades previously where the Japanese economy of course was distinguished by extremely large um, trade surpluses so th- there's a twofold problem here you've got the kind of like the current problem that's affecting a lot of currencies versus the dollar which is a, a yield play but you've also got um, a shift to to a really persistent trade deficit um, so one day the yield story will change, but until that story very clearly changes, um, the equilibrium for the yen may be much lower than market observers um, had thought, you know, previously. Um, I think one of the other things that's worth talking about because because this has added a little bit of volatility. And vol went up one month. Uh, out the money vol went up to about just over seventeen uh, percent um, just a few days ago, and that is. Uh, the highest vol that we've seen in the yen, uh, dollar yen, since um, the onset of COVID. So, what uh, what can we say? You know, the, the obviously one of the things is is talking about Bank of Japan intervention. A couple of things that's worth sort of making some high level comments on that. Central bank interventions are often in vain if the action isn't coordinated with other central banks, and it doesn't seem to be any different this time. It doesn't seem to be. Uh, coordination. I don't think interventions are particularly popular thing to do, and possibly the BOJ is uh, more looking at this in the context of trying to smooth volatility and smooth kind of extreme moves. Um, there are discussions between the Japanese and U.S. governments, of course, but no sign of a concerted effort to move the yen back to a stronger level. And we kind of have to beware 
the history of such coordinated interventions because you know there's a reason they're not too popular. I think the last really major or sort of historical combined currency intervention, which was the Plaza Accord in the mid '80s, it's often blamed for setting in train the macroeconomic policies that led to Japan's bubble economy, the bursting of which led to a sort of paralysis in the Japanese economy for well over a decade after. I mean, that's only part of the jigsaw because the uh, the reason why that went on for a long time also is kind of partly to do with the uh, the BOJ and the Japanese government's response to that situation. But, you know, the fact is, is that was a, Plaza was a um, kind of instrumental in getting them to, to that point. And that had very long-term negative uh, negative implications for the Japanese economy. So people don't really necessarily want to really relive the 80s and relive Louvre and relive uh, Plaza. Um, but uh, yeah, I think there'll be, have to be clear signs of convergence in monetary policy. In other words, um, signs of the, uh, the Fed moving through um, the terminal rate phase, terminal value of the rate, and then moving lower before you can safely hop onto the uh, yen is cheaper, cheap bandwagon, because this could go on for, you know, you're right now you're just fighting a trend. And uh, personally, I hope, I hope I'm wrong on that. <laughs> All right, Nick, I would like to shift gears. Now, in the last uh, episode, we promised some detailed analysis on the Aussie dollar. However, we really can't talk about the Aussie dollar without touching on recent political moves inside China because Australia's economic wagon is very much hitched to uh, China. Now, um, there's been a political reshuffle inside President uh, Xi Jinping's cabinet and basically what's the outcome of this is suggesting further tightening of control of not only their economy but also Western eyes into the the Chinese economy, we're starting to lose that transparent and that uh, transparency and that oversight that we once had of the Chinese economy. So let's talk about uh, how the Aussie dollar is reacting to this news at the moment, uh, and furthermore, any outcomes from the recent National Congress meeting that may have further implications, not just for the Australian dollar but for Australia itself. Yeah, sure. Um, maybe looking at it from a sort of micro. Uh, or market activity point of view first, um, you know, like the Aussie touched 0.617 against the US dollar, which is which is more or less uh, in line with point and figure projections from over the last few weeks. Uh, yes, since then, there's been a fair bit of chop from mid-October onwards, and that's created upside targets where the you know Aussie seems to have consolidated for now back to 65 and 67. Um, so you know, one has to be aware of that the sort of scope for those uh, those upside targets. Um, saying that, you know, uh, the the um, so Aussie kind of couldn't catch a bid today on data, and I suspect that's going to be the theme of the Aussie that struggled to catch a bid um, going forward. Um, China, um, well, again, looking at data first um, last last week, and this 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 sort of would have helped with the Aussie, of course, is that China third quarter number is better than expected. 3.9 instead of 3.3, and um, that certainly helped put a, a, a sort of you know helped a, a put a consolidating hand onto the Aussie um, the last few days. Saying that, and this goes back to something that you were saying about transparency, um, there was a there was a, a moment there during the 20th Party con- Congress where an awful lot of data didn't get published about China. It got delayed. I think it just got delayed rather than not published. But that was worrying that. Um, a lot of data that you expect to see and you kind of assume is is useful is um, you know was being put to one side because it was not as important as the political element of the of the um, 
National Congress. Uh, now, just pivoting back to targets again, actually, um, the very long-term targets, which uh, you know you can't trade on day to day, but they're great for demonstrating, I suppose, the direction of travel. The very long-term target does suggest 57 uh, in the Aussie. And 57, of course, is not very far away when you've just printed 61-ish. Um, but nonetheless, that, that's sort of you know something to keep an eye on. Um, positioning changes saw asset managers increase their shorts in the week ending the 18th of October, whereas um, leverage funds increased their long bets. Um, but bear in mind that the leverage fund sector, their long bets almost halved in the week prior, um, and the, the Aussie swooned lower. And I think they probably haven't looked at the VWAPs where they got in and out and so on, but they probably got a bit smashed on that, you'd have to think. Um, bearish tone on the Aussie, you know, Commodity prices are weaker. Iron ore is significantly lower as China's growth outlook weakens and steel inventories pile up. Um, plus, you know, certainly, certainly use of expectations or risk of a hard landing in 2023 on global tightening. All those things weigh on the Aussie. Um, and trying to thread that back into the discussion on the CCP and National Congress, um, prior to the prior to the 20th uh, National Congress meeting, there was obviously a range of outcomes in terms of who might be retained more than anything else. Um, you know, and perhaps, you know, you'd expect people close to President Xi to be promoted, but the, perhaps the key thing is, is who's promoted and who's retained. Um, in the end, no sort of, uh, the, the, the group of people who were promoted were entirely uh, you know, within um, sort of the President Xi's inner circle. Um, that led to a short-term route on Chinese assets, suggests slower growth. Um, it is always difficult to sort of see, you know, government decisions made to try and deal with uh, the, you know, challenges that arise in any economy. Um, you know, they're, they're probably going to stick with the zero COVID policy. All of the things that are not really growth promoting within um, the world's second largest economy, um, and perhaps of course less constructive engagement with uh, with the wider world and with Australia. Um, that's I would take that as a negative as well for for Australia. So, I think longer term, some headwinds, some pretty serious headwinds. Shorter term, because of where the market has held and where it's chopped back and forth in the last couple of weeks, wouldn't be surprised to see a recovery, but I don't see. You know, just looking at action today, for example, yeah, Aussie doesn't look like it's uh, finding easy to find a bid. So, very, very short take on take on the twentieth party con congress. Not really going into sort of names and so on, but yeah, you know, it looks like more of the same, and you know, certainly that's fed into some pretty sharp declines in uh, China tech and equities, um, and the Aussie is, you know, certainly feeling that as well. I think. Uh, and judging by your trusty point and figure, it sounds like the Aussie is going to be feeling more pain in the near future. Yeah, timing can't can't put my hand on that. But in terms of just looking at the looking at the reasons for why it could be lower, they're all plausible. And then fifty seven is the number. 57.1, I think maybe is the number that comes up on the daily point and figure. And of course, that had a fantastically accurate. Um, downside target to about 55 uh, a few years ago. And then when things caved in with COVID, that's uh, pretty much where we went to before bouncing back. So that's a, 
you know, so I, I like that chart. Uh, I have a complete and utter faith in the point and figure chart. If you tell me the point and figure says that, I believe that we will be seeing it. Now, Nick, our, our time is rapidly drawing to a close today. So I just want to touch on what our key takeaways are for everybody listening. Uh, I think my key takeaway, I think, basically we're looking at a collection of markets that are on edge on what central banks do next. Uh, we're all jumping at shadows trying to work out just how aggressively the Federal Reserve Bank is going to increase rates at the same time while watching significant and persistent uh, intervention from the Bank of Japan. Uh, and, ba- and basically, to paraphrase you, you know, these are the markets that matter at the moment and this is what's driving or not driving gold. Uh, however, what would be your key takeaway that you would like uh, people to think about until our next episode? I think it's the same, same, same thing, really. Uh, if you look at, if you look at how the uh, kind of almost like a slow motion ping pong between um, how people view the Fed, and I, I tend to sort of be when when people look at the Fed and say, "Oh, you know, there's a possibility that the rate of uh, tightening uh, won't be as aggressive." I'm, you know, like I tend to be less slower to pick up on that and tend to think that the rate of tightening or the ultimate uh, set monetary policy setting you know, hasn't changed much, won't change much. But that kind of slow motion ping, ping pong will carry on keeping the markets transfixed for quite a while, probably through into 2023. Um, and this is just a, a, a consequence of the fact that uh, so much economic policy and so much economic support has kind of been apart from, with the exception of the fiscal boost in COVID, but has been kind of outsourced to the central banking community since the GFC. And now we're seeing that um, in a move, which will obviously take uh, a, a while, we're seeing that move uh, to unwind and to normalize. And of course, the, the pace at which it, we're looking to normalize has only been hastened by the supply chain issues, the um, Russia, Russia, Ukraine issues, and all the other things that, um, well, they're not related, but they're they're all driving inflation and then hastening that uh, that probably what the Fed and other central banks hoped would be a more normal pathway to normalization. So this is kind of like we went in one way and we're coming out another way, and that's going to keep markets occupied uh, for a long time. Um, it's still the only game in well, not the only game in town, but you know that's a little bit. <laughs> a little bit too simplistic. They're one of the main games in town. Um, and I think what you're seeing is, and you will continue to see with this strong dollar, is points of um, points of risk, uh, points of um, vulnerability uh, emerge through, um, you know, again, through 2023 from places we don't even think of right now. So that's my long-winded uh takeaway. No, that's actually a fantastic way to close points of vulnerability that we can't even think about right now. I I actually really like that. And it's actually perfect because that's exactly where we're going to leave today's podcast. Fantastic. Nick, (laughs) I want to say thank you for being here. Uh, As usual, it's been wonderful to speak with you and I look forward to seeing you next time. Wonderful to speak to you too, Shay. Catch up later. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to get a better understanding of the technical indicator Nick uses the Ichimoku Cloud. It's available on most trading platforms. Alternatively, you can check the show notes over at abcrefinery.com forward slash podcast. Here you can sign up to receive more information from Nick Frappel, including his monthly report where he incorporates technical analysis alongside macro market commentary. 
That's all from us today at ABC Refinery. We look forward to seeing you next time.